We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. that we as uh, medical PAs don't have to do, but have an option to do, like going down on the hoist and packing people up in a, in a skid to lift them up into the helicopter and treat them. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining us for episode 52 in season three. Today, we speak with Dr. Jed Grant, who is the vice chair for the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the University of the Pacific in Sacramento, California. Dr. Grant and I talk about his military service, including his work as a PA in the military, We talk about his service to the PA profession as the former president of the state board for PAs in California. And we talk about his program and what makes a strong applicant to the University of the Pacific. As always, you can learn more about our guests on our website at www.papathpodcast.com. Well, Jed, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to have you on and learn about the University of the Pacific University's PA school and your department, but also just about your career as a PA. You have such an interesting background and love to start with you just sharing about your own path to becoming a PA. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to, and an honor to be here. You know, pretty distinguished company uh, people that you've had on your podcast. So glad to be here. Um, we, You and I have a very similar background. Uh, you know, we both uh, started in the military. I originally went into the military because I didn't have money to pay for college, right? So I was in junior college trying to work and pay for school. And uh, on a break between classes one day, I ran into an army recruiter and he uh, drank the Kool-Aid, you know, he said, oh, you like being outside? I got, yeah, I got a great job for you. And I'm like, oh, and uh, I, I thought I would probably go into like forestry or something because I like to be outside. And he just started asking me questions like, oh, you like sciences and stuff? I said, yeah. So <clears throat> Anyway, long story short, I signed up to be a medic because I kind of wanted to fly. So oh, being a flight medic would be fun. And so I was all excited about that. And I joined and I got assigned to an infantry unit and I got to see a lot of helicopters fly over. Me. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, just I, so classic. Yeah, felt like I had a helicopter on my back walking around. But, um, uh, so anyway, uh, as a medic in the Army, uh, you know, I kind of learned to like uh, medicine even more. And yeah, probably a lot of civilian people uh, don't understand that in the military, uh, the medics and corpsmen have a really broad scope and they really function almost like a PA does with a physician, right? So the PA is supervising and training the medics and the medics are delivering a lot of care and sort of um, under the supervision of the PA. And I, I thrived in that. I thought it was great. And so when it came time to sort of get out, I was looking at maybe going into law enforcement or something else. And one of the PAs that I had worked with said, well, you know, the military's got this PA program. I I think you should apply. I truthfully didn't think I was smart enough to do it. Um, He Mm -hmm. said, no, you, you can do it. And I was, you know, I'll, I'll, (laughs) they'll have to drag me away kicking and screaming. So I applied and um, 
you know, I think that's one of the days all PAs remember in their careers, the day they got the phone call that you got into PA school, right? So I remember I was uh, up in the mountains. Uh, it had just come off of a long uh, shift on a listening post, observation post, doing some stuff and um, was able to get to a phone and got the phone call and was like, wow, I guess my life's going to be totally different than I thought it was. That's great. And indeed it was. So um, I went to the inner service PA program. I was in the in 1995, uh, but prior to that, each service had their own PA school or program. And yeah. then the inter-service PA program was combined in 95. Um, and I was in the second class of 1996. So they had kind of gotten some of the bumps out by the time I got there, thankfully. So any extra bumps might have derailed me. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I went to the inter-service PA program. It was a great school, really enjoyed it, got great training. And then owed time to the National Guard when I got out. Um, and so when I got out, sort of paid that time back. And it was kind of interesting, you know, when our graduates get out of school, they have made a lot of contacts, you know, on their clinical rotations and with others. A PA world's a pretty small world. And so yeah. they often have jobs lined up. But when you get out of the inter-service PA program, uh, you've been in, in the military world. All of it's done through the military. So if you um, exit to the civilian world, you have no contacts uh, in the civilian world. So it was a little bit challenging to find a job. And so because of that, my, the unit that I was in, they said, well, we've we've got this school date for a flight surgeon course. You want to go to a flight surgeon course? And I'm like, finally, I'm going to get to fly in the military. It was my whole plan, right? So sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> went to the uh, flight surgeon course, which was a lot of fun. Got to fly a little bit and learn all about aerospace medicine. Really, uh, it's like a, a job for uh, it's like occupational medicine for rotary wing aviators, basically, is what it is. Yeah. Um, there's lots, you know, the, the military has regulations for everything. So a lot of stuff that you have to learn how to do and uh, to take care of them. So that worked out perfectly. While I was gone there, I'd sent out a ton of uh, things and was able to find a job in primary care in rural Mesquite, Nevada. If you know where Mesquite, Nevada is. it's Wow. Yeah, at the time, there was like two casinos and a trailer park and a clinic. <laughs> that was all that was there. Uh, and so it was me, an internal medicine doc and a family practice doc and, the, and one other PA. And we kept this clinic open. We had a, a little urgent care that, the, that me and the other PA ran. And then, you know, the two docs ran just office hours. And we were it in the town for healthcare. It was a, a solid hour to get to Las Vegas or St. George. And that was really great. Primary care, rural medicine was pretty fantastic. So I did that for a year. And the doc, one of the docs there, I had known in the military. So he was getting out and was like, hey, man, I need a PA. Can you come work with me? So it worked out. It, it actually worked out really well. I really enjoyed that. That connection did play out then. It did finally. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I was a little yeah. nervous at first. I had two kids and one on the way. And I was like, <laughs> I got to find a job, man. This is scary, yeah. you know? So, um, so yeah, it worked out great. And then uh, I got into emergency medicine after that. But that first year was pretty fantastic being just in the middle of nowhere, you know, just the crazy things that you see being a super rural provider and sort of, uh, you know, figuring out and the MacGyver part of it, you know, like, well, I don't have a CT scan. So how else can I figure this out kind of thing? So it was, it was really fun. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that's such a probably similar to being deployed in the military in that you really have to make do with what you have in your triage and diagnosis. And you really don't want to overuse that medevac system because of the cost to your patients. Yeah, we did have a, an agreement where the helicopter from 
I can't remember which hospital system it was with anyway, from Las Vegas, they would come out and pick people up if we had some crazy things. And I did learn about, you know, holiday heart and going into uh, the casino and drinking a bunch and having problems. We had several episodes of that where, and it was kind of funny because we, you know, especially if they came in the middle of the night, it was just me. I would come, you know, do the 12 lead and start the IV and do everything myself. So it was really a bit of a one person show. So you learn how to kind of multitask and task prioritize. And they would call the helicopter and they'd come get them. We'd, you know, give them IV nitro and the whole bit. But yeah, it was, uh, except that we had, uh, you know, a, a foundation, a cement floor and a real building, uh, which we don't have in the military. We're intense a lot of the times. But uh, um, other than that, you're right. It was kind of like that same thought process. So I was lucky that I had trained, you know, somewhere where they really teach you like, hey, figure this out. You're not, you may not have a lot of resources. So yeah. And I don't want to go too far down the path without kind of circling back about your flight work. So can you tell our audience what it means to be a aeromedical PA in the yeah. military? Yeah. I mean, that it's really awesome. <laughs> so uh, we have this, we go to the same schools to flight surgeons, and now we get the same wings to wear in our uniform as the flight surgeons. When I went, we actually got a different kind of uh, wings, but now we've, they've just given us the same wings to wear. So we do the, basically the same job. Um, in uh, collaboration with the flight surgeon, the only thing aeromedical PAs can't do in the Army is accident or mishap investigation. That has to be done by a flight surgeon. And we can't sit on the medical flying evaluation boards where they you know, decide whether or not to remove a pilot's wings, that kind of thing. Um, that has to be done by the flight surgeon, but everything else we can do, and we can assist the flight surgeon in doing those things. So what that looks like in an operational perspective is if a aviation unit, a unit that has aviation assets deploys, um, they want to send somebody with them that's aeromedically trained so they can keep their pilots and air crew flying and sort of understand the nuances of aerospace medicine and risks to air crew and equipment. And so if there's no flight surgeon available, the aeromedical PA will take that spot. Or in my case, the most recent deployment I went on, we had a very senior flight surgeon and we had like four our medical PAs. Um, and he basically turned over the whole air ambulance unit, said, I want you guys to supervise this, fly with the medics, make sure they're fully trained and doing their job. Um, and the, the flight surgeons can delegate any number of duties to, to the air medical PAs. And so that was really fun for me on the last appointment. I got to actually fly medevac medis missions. I got to go to the, it's called the JEC, the Joint In-Route Care Course, where basically you learn how to do ICU level care in the back of a helicopter, uh, which was yeah. re really fun, you know, uh, and, it, and sort of interesting to learn how to do that stuff when you you can't hear basically in a helicopter, you're deaf, you can't, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, so um, figuring out how to do all that stuff and working closely with the flight medics who um, have way superior training than the training that I got when I was a medic uh, way back in sure, the day. And sure. of course, the um, the critical care nurses that are trained, the ECCNs uh, that are trained to operate in the back of the aircraft as well, sort of integrating with all of them and learning how to do that stuff was amazing. And I got to actually fly a medevac mission on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I was flying a medevac mission, uh, wow. transporting a patient. So that was pretty cool. I took a flag along with me and kept it. So I saw that flag That's uh, awesome. for the 20 year anniversary. Yeah. So it was really fantastic. So from a, a training perspective, we work with flight medics. There's a standard operating guidelines they have. So we make sure that they're following those. And then just like any other protocol driven thing, things don't always fit the protocol. So sort of learning how to work outside that. Most of our flight medics in the army now are paramedics. And so they, they're super smart and very well trained. And yeah. so really it's just uh, sort of working with them to think about the next level things or work through things that aren't um, intuitive. And same thing with the, the ECCNs, the nurses, 
uh, working with them was great too. So really uh, enjoyed that. Uh, and then just flying, getting to know the air crew and I'm pretty tall and six three, so I don't fit really good in most of the aircraft. I'm <laughs> a little squirmed over, but um, uh, just you know, getting to be out there with them and do things. And uh, I've learned now, you know, I'm a, I've I've exceeded uh, fifty uh, by a little bit, and so learning that uh, you know, scrunched over in the back of a helicopter, leaning over a patient while it's bouncing around in 130 degree heat. That's kind of a young person's game. <laughs> it, is, it is. I can do it, but I get off the helicopter and be like, oh, man, I hope I'm going to be able to walk tomorrow, you know? Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. When, yeah. when I was a flight medic, when I was a flight corpsman in the Navy, it's funny when we had branch corpsmen at this clinic, when Desert Storm started, suddenly we were all getting deployed to different units. I fortunately got to stay with my flight unit because we did SAR training. We were a SAR unit and also a SEAL team insertion unit, basically the Uber, as I mentioned before, for the SEALs. So he was the senior. He was an HM1, so an E6. I was an HM2 or an E5. And he got stuck with the ground pounders with the Marines out of Camp Pendleton over in Kuwait, where I got to fly in the air-conditioned helicopters. <laughs> so it, it it was a good duty. You know, I, I don't know if the Army doesn't have air conditioning, but the Navy, the Black Hawk version in the Navy does. So, Oh, man, what other way I got robbed. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We always talk about, you know, the Army has it. The Army and the Marines have it the worst. The Navy, the second worst. And then the Air Force, everybody knows it's just cakewalk. So that's right. And now there's the Space Force and they have it even better. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Well, that that's cool. So in your training for this, did you go through the Hilo Dunker training? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to we get to do all the same stuff the air crew does. So, uh, you know, we have to go through our own flight physical, which is kind of helpful. You know, you get to see it from the patient perspective. And then our, you know, each air crew member has different tasks that they have to perform. But um, our tasks actually inside the aircraft are very minimal. Uh, but we do have to go through all the survival training uh, that all the other air crew does. Um, and then most of our task in the aircraft is other than aerospace space surveillance, make sure nobody flies into us, um, right. is to really help the medic and support the medic in what they're doing. And, you know, we, we really try to let the, this, the flight medic's office, right? Uh, this is their home and where they work and they know what they're doing. So really try not to step on their toes and just be a resource for them. Uh, mm -hmm. so that they can do their job. And they have to do a lot of things that we as uh, our medical PAs don't have to do, but have an option to do, like going down on the hoist and packing people up in a, in a sked to lift them up into the helicopter and treat them or uh, sure. you know, patient transfers and that kind of thing. Um, and the flight medics that I all uh, worked with were all very capable. I mostly would stay out of their way and you know, maybe make a suggestion on this or that or be an extra pair of hands for them. The only time I think that was maybe a little more helpful is when we had some critical care handoffs uh, where we were taking someone from a critical care site, especially if we didn't have a critical care nurse, to be mm -hmm. able to talk with the doc there about what's going on with the patient and, and uh, help the uh, flight medic. There's a lot of things that they have to think about and be aware of in a patient that's got like an open abdomen and, you know, a lot of drips running and all of that stuff. And then same thing when we hand that patient off to the, often to the Air Force or wherever they were going to be uh, further evacuated to make sure that the relay of information is efficient and that kind of stuff. It, it's, a, it's a lot of work. You know, you've got a lot of things going on with the patient. So uh, much like being a PA, and sometimes we talk to our uh, collaborating physicians about, hey, this is what I'm thinking. What, what are you thinking is going on with the patient here? This is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? Very similar process in the back of the aircraft with, here's what I'm seeing. You know, the blood pressure is doing this. What do you think? I don't know. Let's check the tourniquets. Yeah. and. So it was really, uh, really fun uh, to do and very fulfilling. You know, we don't often get to see what happened to the 
patients. We had fortunately very few critical care patients that we had to transport, but um, it was still, uh, you know, knowing that you played a role in getting that person to where they needed to be so they get the care they needed was was very satisfying. Yeah, years ago, when I was past president for PAE, I had the chance to go to this Joining Forces Initiative at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and they uh, they kind of outlined for us the history, the evolution of medevac from. World War II to Vietnam, uh, World War II to Korea to Vietnam to Grenada to current present day situations. And what's really extraordinary is how, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand military medicine is always at the cutting edge of things related to things that ultimately end up in the civilian world, because we're kind of a, a you know, we, we're not, it's not really a democracy in the military. So when they're testing things out on us to try to save lives and limbs, it often will translate to new options for paramedics and docs in the field here in the U.S. And so I think, you know, congrats to you, because absolutely that data shows so much of the impact from combat casualties is mitigated through this complex medevac approach these days that gets them sometimes back to the U.S. within 24 to 48 hours, which is really quite incredible. It is really incredible. And that the teams that they have built, the level of training, that's that's one of my favorite things. One of the reasons I've you know, sort of stayed in is because it's just the level of training that you get is you, it's, it's amazing. And you get to do things that you don't get to do in other places. There's actually a lot of research done on trauma in the military through the joint trauma service where all of the services get together and there's a whole uh, team that evaluates what worked and what didn't. So anytime we have a trauma that we transport, we send a report and they collate all that data and figure out what's working and what isn't. Um, and that's, I think, uh, you know, phenomenal. That data makes its way out to the civilian world. It makes a huge difference. They update those frequently and we get updated training on them frequently. So it is, I can definitely say that our service members get care that is second to none, especially in trauma. I mean, it's, uh, you don't get better trauma care than that. Yeah. So tell us, how long did you stay in that primary care role in Mesquite before you moved on to your next gig? Yeah, I was there for a year, uh, so which was uh, really uh, interesting rural medicine. I really liked it, actually. Uh, the only downside was it's a small town, so you are never off, right? Like everywhere yeah. you go, you run into patients, and there's a plus to that because you develop a relationship with them, but there's a, a minus in that you feel like you're never off work, and it's a, you know, it can be a bit intrusive. So after that, I went to a small town in Central California to work in an ER, and uh, sort of stayed there in the Lindsay Porterville area for many years, so working in a, a critical uh, sort of access ER. It's about, I don't know, our catchment area was several hundred miles and includes a lot of Sierra Nevada mountains. So we got a lot of, uh, you know, crazy things in there. And uh, it, being a rural ER, we weren't a trauma center or anything. So it was, was me and a doc in the middle of the night doing all kinds wow. of fun stuff, which um, would, you know, fit right in with, uh, you know, my background in the military. And um, I was fortunate to work with really great docs who let me do all kinds of great things and see all kinds of great things. And um, so I stayed there for many years and then sort of started taking PA students with me. And that's where I uh, got into PA education a little bit. Probably the best part for me of being emergency medicine was three or maybe four day work weeks, depending on how long our shifts were. So I did uh, general surgery part time while I was working in the ER, you know, would uh, you work in the ER three days a week and then do a day or two a week of general surgery. And I did um, some occupational medicine that way and some family practice that way, just because I always was, you know, curious, well, I have this great job that I can do a lot of things with. I want to try other things, you know, and see, see what it's like. So it was yeah, really fun. Yeah. 
I, I think it's really interesting when we put this emphasis on interprofessional education and practice, how as a military officer, you've had the opportunity to just your your language that you use to talk about the medics and about the nurses and about the docs is so collaborative. And if your ego were an issue, you could want to insert yourself into things that probably you shouldn't because the medics do it every day. And yet, so you have this perspective and then you translate that into an ER setting or a surgical setting. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that since we're really trying to, to break down the walls between all these professions. I think you really hit on the key, which is not to have an ego. <laughs> you know, really, there's uh, there's no room for that. And I, my experience has been that as soon as you start to get a little bit of an ego, a patient will serve you up a giant slice of humble pie. You know? <laughs> that is so true. So you just, uh, you know, medicine is a humbling job and we need lots of brains thinking about what's going on with the patient. And, you know, we can't, nobody can do their job in medicine without the rest of the team, right? We need the clinical lab and housekeeping and radiology and diagnostic imaging and all these, we're all a team together. So I think the more yeah. people thinking about that, the better and sort of being willing to say, well, you know, I, I don't really know about that or, or vice versa to say, well, what, what does everybody think about this rather than saying, this is what, what we have to do. And I think those make for the most effective teams. One of the things that I think has really been a strength lately that I found in emergency medicine, I'm mostly doing urgent care. Now I left the ER in 2020, but is the introduction of clinical pharmacists into the ER has really been phenomenal. Uh, with us helping take care of polypharmacy patients and immune-compromised patients and optimizing our uh, pharmacotherapeutics for people who were admitting and that sort of thing. And typically, we would have to look it up and sort of uh, eyeball it until the you know admitting physician got in and wrote different orders or culture came back yeah. or something. But uh, being able to call the clinical pharmacist and say, hey, this guy's, you know, uh, creatinine clearance is 30 and he's got all of these other problems. You know, what do you think would be the best antibiotic and have them help us figure out an answer is, you know, phenomenal. It just makes us so much more efficient and we deliver a much higher quality care. So I, I think the more interprofessional education we can get, the better we'll all be because those integrative steps come much easier. Yeah. I, I, to your point, I think pharmacists are probably one of the most underrated health professions there is. They are brilliant people, really, really underutilized in so many settings. Yeah. And uh, to your point, I think they're they're so valuable when it comes to those complex cases, especially so. For sure. All right. So let's shift gears and talk about your current job. So you are currently working as the vice chair for the physician assistant department at the University of the Pacific in Sacramento. Can right. you tell us about your program? Sure, absolutely. So we're a 27-month uh, you know, master's degree program, like most. We have uh, 45 seats. We start in January. We graduate in April. Uh, the program started in 2015, and then we received our continued accreditation in 2021. Uh, and we got a 10-year cycle on that, which is uh, really good news. We're pretty pleased with our, our program. Uh, the university has been very generous to us. We have a lot of experienced faculty, a few new faculty. You know, we've got uh, great students uh, that we're really proud of that have really excelled and gone into all different kinds of fields. I actually got a picture from two of my former students uh, about a month ago. They were both in the basic officer leaders course. I didn't realize they had both joined the military and they were, they didn't know each other at either. They sent me a picture from there. So uh, we have a little bit of uh, preference for veterans. You know, we try to make a pathway for veterans that want to go to PA school. And we give some preference to folks from rural and underserved areas, particularly in the Western United States and the Central Valley of California. California, those uh, underserved areas, hard to get people to go there. So if they're from there and they have family there, maybe, you know, they'll be more willing to go back there. Sure. So those are some things we've kind of tried to do to meet the need a little bit. And then you know, another thing we've 
kind of focused on is leadership. Uh, you know, you, you know, you've been in, uh, you know, national leadership positions that uh, where this profession goes in the next 50 years is really in their hands. Uh, you and I yeah, will yeah. hopefully be long since retired, uh, you know, yeah. with our feet up on a beach somewhere uh, <laughs> when uh, they are steering the profession into where it's going to be in the next 50 years. So uh, trying to sort of find those people that have interest in doing, you know, participating and being a part of uh, the future for the PA profession is part of what we do in our program. Then we have a lot of uh, focus on procedures. Uh, we um, train our students all in point-of-care ultrasound, so they all graduate really uh, proficient in point-of-care ultrasound, um, all sorts of trainers. And you know, we have uh, several people on the faculty that have an ER background, so I think um, having you know just a, a procedure-heavy, a lot of faculty that have that background, we all said, well, we really want to teach them these procedures. So uh, we sort of dug ourselves into a whole little bit for the faculty because that stuff's pretty, uh, you know, a lot of work, but always uh, willing to do that and excited to have students at least be familiar with all sorts of procedures that might not be taught in some other um, programs. I was fortunate in the, you know, going through the military program that I got taught all, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize that wasn't done in some other programs until I got out and was working. And, uh, you know, some of my colleagues are like, no, we never got that training. And so that's something we wanted to try and build in as well. It's interesting how particularly POCUS or, or point of care ultrasound, that's kind of evolved into I, I would argue almost student driven because mm -hmm. the students on rotations are seeing this on their emergency medicine rotations and they feel less than qualified because the programs didn't really prepare them for it in many cases. And so they've kind of really pushed us in that direction from my perspective. And it is it's super cool to watch them learn. So that's great that you do that. You're in Sacramento, which is a capital city for California. Are the majority of your rotations in Northern California? Are they spread out in rural versus urban? How does that work out? Yeah, we, uh, our rotations, most of them are from uh, maybe an hour north of Sacramento to um, the Bakersfield area um, mm -hmm. uh, in the Central Valley, the rural areas of the Central Valley. Most of them are, uh, almost all of our rotations are within the state of California. We do have some out-of-state rotations. We have quite a few in the LA area as well. One thing that's really great, I mean, you, you know this from your time uh, at USC, I think, is that the environment between uh, programs in California is really collaborative. So it's been nice to be able to, you know, work in the same area as other programs and, uh, you know, work together to, um, you know, train as many people as we can to try and meet some of those needs. So uh, we've been really fortunate. Uh, UC Davis is actually just two miles away from us and right next to us. And so, you know, getting to work with them a little bit and then um, the Western Consortium with the, the programs there and sort of putting all their heads together and uh, yeah. making the best environment we can. But for us, almost everything's within California. Very good. So you, you kind of alluded to my next question a little bit. I, maybe we can just elaborate a little bit more on this. You, you discussed kind of looking at veterans, looking at folks with a rural focus. When you think about really strong applicants, People that have just been a real solid yes for you as a admissions committee, what are those folks typically bringing to the table? Yeah, great question. And, uh, you know, certainly when we get a lot from applicants, like, you know, what can make me stronger? I think for us, it's really having a, a well-rounded background. Uh, you know, it, it helps if you're from those underserved areas or if you're not, that you have a really um, strong desire to go to those, you know, because mm -hmm. our mission, we're learner focused. So if somebody wants to work in a big city doing, you know, something really specialized, critical care, whatever, that's fine. We'll help them do that. But there's a lot of people that want to do that. So um, that's not quite as hard to meet as, you know, Mesquite, Nevada, where no, nobody really wanted to move to, you know, if we hadn't yeah. been there, there would have been no healthcare for an hour in any direction. So trying to get people out into those little rural areas, I think is something that helps or a desire to 
to help people, I think, is kind of a, any way that uh, an applicant can express that, you know, they have an altruistic streak. They really want to help people because, you know, when you get down to it, medicine, the science of it is why we get into it, right? The science is fascinating and like that. But what really at least for me, motivates me and keeps me going is when I can actually help somebody, right? You've made someone's life better because you went to work today. And sometimes that's hard to do. The patients are not happy about that. You know, they're having a terrible day and they're kind of mad at you because yeah. they waited a while. So yeah. sort of having a really strong altruistic sense of wanting to help people with something, uh, however they've demonstrated that, like, you know, doing volunteer work or in maybe whatever healthcare experience that they've had before they come to PA school, you know, that they can demonstrate that. I think that's helpful because that's what carries them through. And that's, you know, one, I think personally, burnout is a big problem. But one of the biggest defenses against burnout is, is being able to be compassionate and experience that sort of mission driven fulfillment that comes from knowing that you're, you're helping people, right? Uh, yeah. You know, we, we all want to get paid and, and, you know, make a good living, but really the, that fulfillment and the frustration of that fulfillment, I think contributes to burnout. So um, if people self-motivated for that, I think is helpful. We, we like a GPA that's, you know, it has to be above three, but three, three to three, seven, somewhere in that ballpark doesn't have to be super high, but we find that people that are below three, three tend to have academic struggles in PA school. So if they are below, you know, three, three or below, we kind of really want to figure why like, okay, well, you were playing intercollegiate sports and you were an RA in the dorm and you were working part-time then that, then they're probably going to be fine versus somebody who was all they could do to get that. They might struggle a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, and then healthcare experience where they, they were really right there with a patient when a healthcare is being delivered so that they know what that's like. I often tell a story about this guy I worked with in the ER. It's like two in the morning and it's busy mayhem. You know, usually it's, it's always busy in the ER, but he sits down he throws a chart into the corner of the desk. He says, man, I love medicine. It's so awesome. It's really great, but the patients ruin it. That's probably you're not in the right job, my guy, you know, you should have picked yeah. something else, you know, go into research. So um, I think that's really what we're trying to avoid is somebody that would be very unhappy in their job delivering healthcare to people. Um, so those are the things that we're kind of looking for and find to make, uh, you know, really successful, you know, applicants and graduates of our program is folks that kind of have all of those qualities mixed together. And when you talk about leadership, you, you said the program really likes to put an emphasis on leadership. How, how is it that you do that? What are the kind of things that you weave into the curriculum to, to place that emphasis? So we have a weekly case-based learning. And so sometimes we'll put the students in charge of that. Um, we put the students in charge of their own uh, volunteer stuff while they're in the program. So we have uh, helped them organize a student organization and they have officers, but how active uh, or involved that organization is in the community is really driven by the students. We pay for them to have a membership in the state organization. We um, encourage them to um, attain memberships in the national organization. Uh, we encourage them to participate and be involved in student leadership in those organizations uh, in, in various capacities. Uh, we teach them. Uh, almost all of the faculty have had some involvement in some leadership pathway in the profession. And so we you know, have people come in and talk to them about that. We have a month-long uh, leadership seminar that they go through where we have leaders from all over the profession come and talk to them about you know, their background, almost like what you're doing. Yeah. And I actually was thinking uh, this podcast would be awesome to link to that course and have them just listen to a lot of these to see the different ways that folks have been involved in leadership in the profession uh, sure, so that sure. we can teach them that. But as far as applying, we're looking for any kind of leadership background that they've been into before they came to PA school. Great. That's awesome. Speaking of leadership, you yourself have <laughs> been involved in leadership. I was 
I was thinking when you're talking about the things that a aeromedical PA can't do, you mentioned the board that you, you know, the, the board that oversees accident mishaps, et cetera. So you found a way to get involved in that kind of thing anyways, because you were on, you are on the California board for PAs, right. correct? Yeah, And you've correct. been the president of that. You've been a vice president of that. So can you talk a little bit about your desire to serve the profession and what what it means to be uh, as a leader overseeing really the PA profession for an entire state? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, uh, I've really enjoyed my time. It's been almost 10 years I've been on the board. 2013, I was appointed. Wow. Uh, I didn't, yeah, that went by fast. Yeah, time really goes by fast. So I uh, have been really honored to work on that. The mission of the board is really public protection, right? So that if a citizen goes to see a PA for health care and the PA is licensed, they know that there's a minimum level of safety and competence that that PA has met. And that's what it's about. And then, of course, if a PA isn't measuring up to a standard, then there might be some discipline for that PA to make sure that they're safe to practice on the public. And so there's a pathway for the public to complain to the board about the license. The board carries out its mission of public safety by issuing licenses and enforcing the laws and regulations uh, related to PA practice in California. And that, that really is, you know, basically what the board does. We also have a role when there's um, new regulations. So in California, in the last few years, they passed this really big bill called SB 697. And that changed the way the PAs are supervised in California and the way they practice, removed a lot of just unnecessary barriers to healthcare for PAs. But getting there, you know, passing laws and regulations is like watching sausage be made. You know, it, <laughs> it's it's not pretty. And sometimes there can be some conflicts, but we were able to, you know, as the PA board, some of the things that the professional organization wanted to do were directly contrary to our mission of public safety, you know. Yeah. And so working that out where we could still maintain the safety of the public and but still reduce barriers to PA practice was really an interesting process. I really enjoyed that. And so I think that was that was really great. And then the other thing that I did as a, a leader in the board was the PA board in California really started out as a committee of the medical board. Um, and we, when I came to the board, had just not too long before that broken off to be our own board, but we really were an independent board in name only. We still did everything through the medical board, really. And so one of the things we did in our strategic plan is you know, our profession has grown enough that we can regulate our own. We don't have to be regulated by somebody else. And so we became a fully independent board. That's happened all within the last 10 years. Um, we have our own process for disciplining people. Our culture as a board is a little bit different than the medical board, wherein we're a little less tolerant of shenanigans. shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from licensees, you know, there's not very, there's, you know, 15,000 PAs in California. And if somebody does something wonky, that gets around and that hurts us all and it hurts patients and their access to care. So we, we hold our licensees to a really high standard. And so sort of in, you know, setting that culture and working through to, to make sure that that happens um, and that we, uh, we had some cases where um, there had never been, one of the things that just was kind of a burr under my saddle is that we would have cases come through where no PA had ever reviewed the case, right? So a case would, a complaint would be made, it would be investigated, it would go to a, a medical expert who would look at it and say, oh, I don't feel like this care was appropriate. And then this PA would end up being disciplined or whatever. No PA anywhere in there looked at the case. And I said, that's, that's inherently Crazy. unfair, right? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, even though physicians have been through a residency, which is kind of a similar to being a PA where they have an attending and that kind of stuff. It's still not the same, right? A PA knows what it means to be a PA, and a PA knows when another PA delivered that care, whether or not it was appropriate, and you know all of the other factors that were um, playing into that. So 
it was a long, hard fight, but we finally got, uh, you know, regulations approved where now PAs can, uh, in California, a PA will review every disciplinary case. So um, that's Congrats. been exciting. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we've been really excited to see that happen. And of course, the board staff grow as we become an independent board. You got to have more staff that supports all that. We're really happy. We In California, we have everybody licensed pretty much, unless there's some problem with their license within 30 days, which is really great. Uh, yes. Yeah. So I'm so proud of our board staff. We've had a lot of growth and um, just their willingness to reach out to licensees and programs and be helpful to people that are trying to become a PA as well as very helpful to the public and you know making sure that they're receiving the care that they need to have. So really tremendously proud of them and the work that we do as a, a board to protect the public. Um, it's a lot of, uh, sometimes a lot of work, particularly in the, in the president's role, um, but definitely worthwhile. You feel good about it. You know, you're serving your profession in a very meaningful way. Absolutely. I, I had the chance at the NCCPA to be on their review committee. So when somebody get in trouble in California, within a few months, that would be in front of the review committee for the NCCPA if they were nationally certified, which the vast majority are. And different states have a different kind of ethos around what to do with DUIs or with medical malpractice concerns or things like that. And I, I was always impressed by California. I think you all seem to be very fair and you're also very protective of our colleagues who are struggling with addiction, which right. we all, you know, we all have that in our professions. It's, it's not unique to our profession, but also you, you set a bar, right. And you're, right. you ensure that they, they are in a, a strong program that they're, they're getting random testing uh, that they, they prove over a period of five years often that they are able to manage themselves beyond that. And yeah, those are difficult cases to deal with. Yeah, they really are. And I think it's very fulfilling uh, in that role to have a colleague that's had some trouble and face some discipline to go through it and successfully complete that and return to full unrestricted practice and the pride that they have in overcoming that. And, you know, it's been, it's, it's great to see that. There's many times where, yeah. you know, we have our colleagues come through and say, man, you know, I'm, I'm just so proud of the, the way you were able to get through this and return to practice and their real desire to con to return to practice and to help people um, and uh, their open admission of, you know, their struggles with addiction. And, you know, I think it's been helpful in the last 10 or 15 years, we've really come to understand addiction as a disease um, yeah. and that it's, you know, it's not this uh, social thing that people choose to do many times there is a disease process part of it and sort of getting at the root of that and fixing it. So um, that's been very, uh, you know, a great part of uh, serving on the board, uh, but also to, you know, make practice better for PAs in California and have some outreach to the public and help them understand what a PA is. Those are all parts of the things that, that we do on the board. That's been um, you know, really, really fun. Unfortunately, I'll term off the board. You're only allowed to be on it for uh, two terms plus partial terms. So in 2024, I will be off the board. Oh my gosh. Well, what what a what a credit to you in terms of what you and your colleagues were able to achieve in the last decade. It really is impressive. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, I know many of the folks on that board through LA dealings, UCLA, you know, of course, uh, Dr. Alexander from UCLA and yeah. many, many, many others. And and I know that the people that serve there really do have a passion for the mission of that board, but also to to ensure that the profession is able to grow the way it should. So that that's an important role. Uh, two things I'll say about this. One is the fact that your staff at the PA board turned things around for our new grads so quickly. A lot of people don't understand that it can take months to get a license in some states and then months to get credentialed. And that's that's all time where these folks can't practice with their career at the revenue that they should be receiving after investing in this. And, and so California does a, an extraordinary job of turning that around and they should be commended. And, and then the second thing I'll say is, I'm sure you do this as a leader in your program. For me, 
the first conversation I had as a program director in orientation was the California board conversation, because I think students need to understand that they're entering into a different level of expectation, similar to what we expect for pilots and and for doctors, of course, and others to protect the public, that the days of of erring on the side of, I'm going to drive home with that drink in me instead of getting an Uber, you enter our profession, that could be a significantly expensive uh, decision to make. It's not just the Uber cost, but it's the random drug testing and alcohol testing and going to AA meetings and and counseling and all of that adds up over those five years that you're stuck. And, and as I understand it, the California board's perspective on that is, while we will look at what happened before PA school with really egregious acts, the time you enter the profession is the time where the bar really jumps up. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. And the bar, we do have that same conversation, like, you know, you've chosen to enter a profession where you take people's very lives into your hands and you're trusted with their most sacred of secrets. And because you are entrusted with that, the the bar is very high. You're held to a much higher standard than the general public. And, yeah. you know, we, we did have, we do have licensees that feel like that's completely unfair. Oh, well, you know, this had nothing to do with my practice and I take good care of patients. And that may be true. But it does have to do with your practice because we expect you to be above reproach. Uh, And so I'm sort of just recognizing that responsibility that you're voluntarily taking that on and that, uh, you know, a violation of that uh, has pretty severe consequences like you're talking about. So I do think most most students recognize that and say, okay, I I really have to, you know, behave differently and I can't do some of these things that maybe I might have gotten away with uh, as, you know, some other job. Uh, it's a little bit similar to law enforcement in that way. You know, we, we expect our law enforcement officers to be above reproach and to be able to tolerate things that the average public would not. Um, and when that doesn't happen, we've seen the catastrophic uh, results of that, I think, in the last few years. So um, it's it's sort of similar uh, in, in that regard to, hey, you, you've got a lot of responsibility here. The, the general public expects you to be a... a um, model of behavior and responsibility. Yeah, Jed, you, you brought this up, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just throw it out there, right? Because you you've had this kind of duplicity of roles as a law enforcement officer. Um, you've been a Leo. Are, are you still currently a reserve Leo? No, uh, no, I left law enforcement in 2015 when I came to Sacramento. Okay, okay. And and you know you're a, a community healthcare leader. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, kind of. Um, the two roles that you had when they overlapped uh, in the Central Valley a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So um, I uh, got out of the National Guard in 2006 because my kids were little and I'd just gotten back from a deployment and was, you know, gone. I was going to have to leave again within a year and I didn't want to be gone so much. My kids were growing up. So when I got out, I was looking for a way to give back to my community and um, actually did another uh, podcast about this called Real Talk. I don't know if you've heard that. Um, One of the ER docs I worked with has a podcast where she just talks to people about why did you get into emergency medicine or what what led you here? What do you like about it? For yeah. me, I was uh, working on Christmas Eve and one of our docs um, was killed on his way to his shift in the ER by a drunk driver. And I was the provider for the drunk driver that killed him uh, and had to sew his wow. ear back on and some other stuff. And um, he was, you know, being difficult and belligerent as often intoxicated people will. And I found myself really conflicted inside because I was so angry at this guy who had just killed my friend, but he's there, his wife is crying and he's got some injuries and she's upset about that. And I could sort of see him as a person, but Mm -hmm. still be, you know, very frustrated with him. 
I thought, man, I would really like to do something in my community where I could stop this from happening. You know what I mean? Before sure. in the ED, we see so much of the detrius of society's problems. You know, we get them after the damage has been done and try to fix yeah. it. So yeah. um, for me, that was a way to get out into the community and try and prevent some of that stuff from happening. Um, and so interestingly, the thought process is very similar. You know, when we have a patient that comes, our medical decision-making process is sort of chief complaint, you know, differential diagnosis, and we sort of work it out. Um, and law enforcement is um, what are the you know, what crime do we think has been committed, and what are the elements of that crime, and did, does this person fit those elements? So it really was a, the natural process for me in terms of applying both of those things together. And then working in the emergency department, there was a lot of crossover. You know, I'd run into patients and people I had seen in the emergency department, which could be a little uncomfortable. I usually would just tell them like, "Oh, I got a twin brother that works in the emergency department," so just trying to avoid that conflict. You know, <laughs> um, but you're still helping people, and it was really fulfilling to go to you know, I had a patient that was, I'd seen two or three times that ended up dying as a result of domestic violence. Um, so going, you know, being able to go to a domestic violence call and separate them and send the, the abusive person, uh, you know, away, make sure that that person that's being abused is safe or um, arresting a drunk driver before they kill somebody, you know, that yeah. stuff was all very fulfilling and felt like it was a meaningful way to help people. And I, I really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that um, law enforcement does every day that is no one knows about. I mean, I can think of many times where we would go help somebody and take them to buy food or put gas in their car or give them a ride to wherever that doesn't get publicized anywhere. And the vast majority yeah. of the police officers I worked with did that kind of stuff all the time. Um, sure. And it takes a special person to be willing to put their life on the line for their community, which is really what most law enforcement officers do. But like any profession, there's some people that, you know, have problems and don't do the right thing. And um, like PAs, law enforcement is held to that high standard. And when they violate it, it's just egregious. You know, it's very offensive because they're given this great authority uh, to remove someone's freedom. And we expect them to be held to the highest standards. I was fortunate that I worked at a department that had very high standards. We got lots of training on this um, and we didn't have any problems with this kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, I, I do see what happens in the media. I just got so much busier when I um, started working full time in education and still working in the emergency department and then moving to Sacramento and starting a new program. I just didn't have time to work in law enforcement anymore. And then sure. moving to the bigger city, I was in a fairly small town in Visalia in Central California. Um, we had, you know, tremendous support for law enforcement and it, it really felt engaged in the community, but going to a different community, it just didn't uh, work well for me. But there are times where I miss it. And certainly, um, you know, my brother's a retired uh, police officer. So I was some law enforcement in the family. So I certainly kind of stay current on that stuff. But I did think that there's a lot of crossover between, you know, the thought process and the desire to help people and that sort of thing. Uh, so being held to, a, you know, a moral higher standard uh, than the average society, there's a lot of similarities between the professions. Well, and probably too, I always imagine that the team part of law enforcement and the military, you, you know, when you leave the military, you miss that, that kind of esprit de corps that you had in your unit or squadron or battalion, et cetera. So um, yeah. you, you probably found that when you were there with your brothers and sisters in law enforcement. Absolutely. Yeah. Still, uh, still very good friends with several of them. Uh, you know, when you when you trust um, your life to someone else and theirs to yours, that creates a bond. You don't you really can't replicate in other places. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it takes that, that whole teamwork to the next level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, well, Jed, before we go, is there anything else that you're hoping that we talk about today that we didn't get a chance to cover? Uh, I, I don't think so. I'm just so grateful to be here and I'm really grateful for, you know, being able to be a member of this profession. I, I love my job so much. I love being able to educate the next generation of PAs that's coming through and, 
feel so fortunate that I've gotten to do this. I'm, you know, PA education is great. I, I uh, was a co-director of a postgraduate uh, fellowship for a year. We did a, a pilot on that, which was really kind of fun. And then being in uh, regular PA education, now seeing the growth of maybe the direction that the um, PA education is going with the doctoral programs and things like that. I think it's a really a, just a great time to be a PA uh, with the way the profession is growing. And I never fail to be impressed by our colleagues. Man, they just are amazing. The care that they deliver, the way they are with patients, the research that they do, uh, everything they're doing, it just makes me proud to be a member of the profession. So, and especially proud to be invited to be on your podcast, you know, as a leader in the profession yourself to, you know, uh, just getting to know you a little bit over the last several years and then uh, being asked to be on here, I think is a great honor. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Jed Grant, for taking time to share his insights on being an Army BA on being a member of the board for the California PA board, and also on his information for the University of Pacific PA program. Tune in next week as we speak with PA Michael Stadler, an associate professor for the Department of Physician Assistant Studies at the PA program at UT Southwestern in Dallas. We talked to Michael about her long career as a PA educator, including her service to the profession as a past president for the Physician Assistant Education Association and a dean for a school at Rosalind Franklin University, where she served for many years. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.